Beautiful words from Philippians chapter 2. May we pray that those last couple words we just sang would be what God's word does to our heart this morning, that as we see his obedience unto death, our sinless sacrifice, we would repentant bow before the cross and behold salvation's price. Scripture reading this morning is again from the book of Job. Job chapter 28, we will read. I'd like to actually um, consider Job chapters 28 through 30. We'll read just chapter 28, though, and then um, 29 and 30 we'll uh, consider throughout the sermon. So please uh, keep your Bibles open and follow along as we look at these three chapters on wisdom, Job 28 to 30. Job says, Surely... There is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches every recess for ore in the darkness and the shadow of death. He breaks open a shaft away from the people in places forgotten by feet They hang far away from men. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, from it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the source of sapphires, and it contains gold dust. That path no bird knows, nor has the falcon's eye seen it. The proud lions have not trodden it, nor has the fierce lion passed over it. He puts his hand on the flint. He overturns the mountains at the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams from trickling. What is hidden, he brings forth to light. But where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. The deep says it is not in me, and the sea says it is not with me. It cannot be purchased for gold, nor can silver be weighed for its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire, neither Gold nor crystal can equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewelry of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or quartz, for the price of wisdom is above rubies. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Destruction and death, say we have heard a report about it with our ears. God understands its way and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees under the whole heavens to establish a weight for the wind and apportion the waters 
by measure. When he made a law for the rain and a path for the thunderbolt, then he saw wisdom and declared it. He prepared it indeed, he searched it out. And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. As far as the reading of God's word, again, I invite you to keep your Bibles open as we consider those next two chapters as well. Congregation, the world's standard of wisdom and the Christian standard of wisdom, I don't need to tell you, are not the same. Just a step on foot of any university campus, turn on the TV for five minutes, I drive down the street and observe the signs in people's lawns, and it's clear the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. And yet 1 Corinthians 1, which we heard in our call to worship, says also that God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. And here in Job 28, Job, in a sense, makes foolish the wisdom of his friends. The wisdom they've been offering for the last 25 chapters that's more or less defined by living in such a way as to merit blessing in this life. Earthly prosperity. That's what they've been selling. But Job, in this passage, and in the chapters that follow, makes clear that earthly prosperity is not an indication of wisdom, but that wisdom is, in fact, the opposite. Wisdom is dying. Wisdom is humiliation. Wisdom, ultimately, is a man hanging on a cross. And for us, wisdom means being dragged to the foot of that cross also. Here in Job 28 to 30, we see that the wisdom of God is revealed in the cross. And so in Job 28, we see this great quest for wisdom that we just read of. And then in Job 29 and Job 30, we see the great revelation of wisdom then as we step back and consider it all together, these, these three chapters really in many ways at the heart of this book, what we have is an invitation to true wisdom. The quest for wisdom, the revelation of wisdom, and the invitation to wisdom as the wisdom of God is revealed in the cross. Let's take a look with me first at chapter 28 as we consider Job's quest for wisdom. Where it's not until verse 12 that Job actually asks the question, uh, where shall wisdom be found? But it becomes clear as we read that verses 1 through 11 are not ultimately just about gold and silver, but are ultimately about wisdom as well. Now Job says that silver and gold, you look at those opening verses, and, and iron and copper are found under the earth, verse 3, in, in darkness and the shadow of death. He says that man, in seeking after these treasures, verse 4, must go away from the place where men live to places that are forgotten. 
These treasures that he enumerates for us are associated with fire. Verse 1 says there is a place where gold is refined. Verse 5, underneath the earth, it is turned up as by fire. Verses 7 to 11, these are hidden treasures on the path that no bird knows, where the sons of pride, which is literally what verse 8 says, have not trodden. It says, verse 11, what is hidden, man brings forth to light. And so these great treasures like gold and silver are associated with the refining of fire. They're associated with darkness under the earth. They're associated with humility because the sons of pride will not step foot in the place where these treasures are found. They're difficult to obtain. And when Job then turns to the question of where wisdom may be found in verse 12, the the comparison begins to make sense. Just like gold and silver require humility and refining and, and going into the darkness to obtain them, verse 13 says, neither is wisdom found in the land of the living. And if there's any correlation between value and inaccessibility, then wisdom is even harder to find because verse 15 says, it cannot be bought for gold, nor can silver be weighed as its price. It cannot be uh, valued in the gold of Ophir and precious onyx or sapphire. Job says gold and crystal cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for for jewelry of fine gold. Indeed, the price of wisdom, he says, is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia, the, the greatest treasures in all the earth, cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. And so if gold and silver can only be attained through descending into the depths of the earth, into darkness and humiliation, the refinement of fire, then how much more should we expect that of wisdom, which cannot even be valued in in those difficult-to-obtain treasures? So verse 21 says of wisdom that it is hidden from the eyes of all living. Even destruction and death have only heard of it. But God knows the way to wisdom. Verse 25 says, He gave to the wind its weight, and he apportioned the waters by measure. He made a decree for the rain and a way for the thunderbolt or or the lightning. And then he saw wisdom and declared it. While the connection between um, darkness and humiliation on the one hand and and the wind and lightning is is maybe not at first very clear, you've got to remember what's happened so far in the book of Job. Job is saying that wisdom is revealed in the wind and in the lightning. Where have we seen these so far in the book of Job? The word wind is a rather common one in the book. I think it comes up about 15 times in Job, and so it's not by accident that it comes up again here. The very first time we saw it was way back in Job chapter 1, when that great wind came and uh, knocked down the roof of the house on Job's children and killed all 10 of them. 
We saw that, that word wind again in a place like Job 16 when Job referred to the miserable and, and painful counsel of Eliphaz as windy words which have no end, which are blowing against him with great force. And so the wind in the book of Job is a picture of, of suffering and death, of humiliation. Or you think about the thunderbolt or the, the lightning at the end of verse 26. Have we seen that anywhere in Job? In Job 1 verse 16, what is the fire of God that comes down from heaven and burns up his sheep? Virtually every commentator is agreed. That's lightning. That fire from God that came down from heaven and brought destruction was lightning. And, And so now in Job 28, God has established that the path to wisdom is in some way through the lightning and the wind, through darkness and humiliation, through going down to the depths. The way to acquire wisdom is to die. For it's not found in the land of the living, and it's destruction and death that have heard something of it. And so as we consider how this chapter fits within the rest of the book, it's clear that what the Holy Spirit is saying is that Job is learning wisdom through suffering. And then in verse 28, that familiar phrase, fearing the Lord and shunning evil, is the same phrase that we saw back in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And so for Job, continuing on the path of wisdom means learning the fear of God through suffering. It means taking up his cross. Or as Hebrews 5.8 says of Christ, though he was a son, he learned obedience through suffering, through going down to the depths, and yet even uh, in the depths and in the darkness, fearing God and holding on to him in the midst of it. And for us, beloved, wisdom means the same thing. It means dying. So I said the world's standard of wisdom and the Christian's standard of wisdom are exactly opposite because dying to our own desires and being humiliated, humbling ourselves, is exactly what the world tries to avoid. But here it's exactly what God's word is calling us to. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the cross is laid on every Christian. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And so the quest for wisdom is a quest that leads us on the road of suffering and self-denial, that, that leads us on the path of cruciform service. And in Job, we see an example of that. And throughout the book, we've seen how his example points to the supreme example of suffering and self-denial in Christ. And so in chapters 29 and 30 now, We see as clearly as anywhere else in the book a shadow of the Christ who will come and suffer. Here we see the revelation of God's wisdom as Job continues his speech in chapter 29. And it says in verse 1 that he again took up his discourse. That word for discourse is actually the word proverb. And so in these next two chapters, Job is continuing his proverb on wisdom. Recalling in chapter 29 his former glory before then comparing it with his present sorrow in chapter 30 as the revelation 
of God's wisdom. Again, I invite you to follow along as we um, survey these chapters. I see in the first several verses that Job speaks of the divine blessing that once rested upon him, where verse 2, God watched over him and his lamp shone upon his head, reminding him, reminding us in in verse 3 of of that ironic blessing. Number 6, may the Lord bless you and keep you and may his face shine upon you. That's the sort of experience Job is, is describing, God watching over him and his lamp shining down upon him. Job says that the friendship of God was over his tent, and then begins to describe the many blessings that, that accompanied God's presence. He says in verse 5 that his children surrounded him. Verse 6, that his steps were, were bathed with cream. The rocks also poured out oil for him. These are, are covenant blessings from Deuteronomy that Job is describing. And so as the presence of God was with him in verses 1 to 4, that presence brought with it divine blessing. In verse 7 and following, not only does Job experience divine blessing, but that divine blessing leads to royal honor. It says that he took his seat by the city gate and the young men would hide themselves. The, the aged or the elders would, would rise as Job came near. It says the princes would shut their mouths. The voice of nobles was hushed. Those who heard Job blessed him. Those who saw him approved of him. And yet, even though he was honored above everyone else in all the land as the greatest man in all the east, Job did not use that honor to serve himself. Rather, verse 12, he delivered the poor and the fatherless. You you see that? Because I delivered the poor who cried out, the fatherless and the one who had no helper. Verse 13, it says that he caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. Remember James 1.27 says, true or, or pure religion is, is this, that you care for uh, widows and the fatherless. This is what Job is doing. Verse 14, it says, he put on righteousness and it clothed him. Justice was like a robe and a turban for him. If you were to just read this, not having any idea what book of of the Bible this was coming from, you might think that this is some sort of grand messianic prophecy or messianic psalm. Job is being described here in, in messianic terms. He's being described like the great king from Psalm 72 who judges the poor with justice and saves the children of the needy who breaks oppressors, who who the nations honor him and the kings come and and offer adoration to him and they bow down before him. Verse 14, it tells us that he judges with righteousness and justice. You might recall, if you can think all the way back to uh, late April when we began this study in Job, back in in chapters 1 and 2, we saw how Job was being presented there as both a priest and a king. Here in verse 14, when it says that justice was like a robe and a turban for him, those again are royal and priestly images. Described elsewhere in the Old Testament to priests and to kings. 
And this righteous priest king, just as the Messiah would later do, according to Isaiah 35, it says in verse 15 that he gives sight to the blind and he gives feet to the lame. Job says in verse 16, he is a father to the needy. And verse 17, that he breaks the fangs of the wicked so that the victim might be plucked from his teeth. Toward the end of the chapter, he's spoken of an almost God-like language where he says that the light of his countenance would, would shine down upon those who would wait for him as they wait for the spring rain. And then Job concludes the chapter saying, I chose their way and sat as chief. I lived like a king among his troops, like one who comforts mourners. Isn't it interesting how later biblical writers actually uh, borrow the, the language here of Job to speak of the royal glory, yet also condescension of the messianic king. Or to speak of God as the one who comforts those who mourn and is a father to the fatherless. We're not reading into this at all when we see Job 29 as a type of the glory of the messianic king to come. Remember how from the very beginning of the book, this righteous priest king is God's answer to the accuser. This is the wisdom of God on display. And yet the wisdom of God is not just the glorious king of chapter 29, but it's the glorious king humbling himself and suffering so that the royal honor and glory of chapter 29 is set against the, the, the royal shame of chapter 30. As Job goes on in that same speech and, and speaks of himself as one who children mock. He says, even the children of the men who wouldn't have been worthy to be put with my dogs, even they and their children mock me. See that in, in verse 1. Those Men who were gaunt from hunger, verse 3. Who had been driven out from among men, verse 5. Dwelling in the caves of the rocks, the, the sons of fools. Yes, the sons of vile men, he says, verse 8. Even among them, Job has become a byword and a taunting song. Verse 10 says, they abhor him and keep far from him. They do not hesitate to spit in his face. And so just as chapter 29 was filled with messianic language of the glory of the king to come, so chapter 30 is filled with messianic language of his suffering. Just as verse 9 says he became a byword among them, so Psalm 69 says Christ became a byword among men. Even the drunkards would make songs about him. Even thieves on the cross mocked him. As verse 10 says, they spat in his face. So Isaiah 50 says, I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Job says that God has loosed his bowstring and afflicted him. Verse 11, just as the greater Job would be afflicted by God. Isaiah 53, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Job says in verse 16 that his soul is, is poured out within him. Days of affliction take hold of him. Again, these words are echoed in that messianic psalm, Psalm 22. I am poured out like water. My heart is like wax, melted within my breast. Job's bones are pierced, verse 17, and the pain that gnaws at him takes no rest. 
His garment is disfigured. He has been cast into the mire and become like dust and ashes. Congregation, this is not just a poetic retelling of Job's story, but this is also a prophetic foretelling of the ultimate story. Job is speaking of himself, especially in chapter 29, in ways that go beyond himself because what is happening to him, God is giving to us here in his word to point us to something greater. What happened to Christ? The great king of creation who rules with righteousness and justice but becomes a byword. Whose soul is poured out within him who literally becomes like dust and ashes as he's buried in the grave, goes from royal honor to royal shame. And just as God's blessing rested upon him in chapter 29, so God's curse rests upon him in chapter 30. Get verses 19 and following. It says that God has cast him into the mire. Verse 19 this is the way that the Psalms of Judgment often speak of God's enemies. Cast them down into the mire, O Lord. And so as Job's been cast down, it says that he cries out to God, but there's no answer. Because God is the one, he says in verse 21, who's afflicted him. God is the one who's opposed. In verse 22, God is the one who has lifted him up on the wind and, and as the ESV says, tossed him about in the storm. Does that sound familiar from the end of chapter 28? Where wisdom is in the wind of the storm. God brings him down to death, to the house appointed for all living, he says. Remember, uh, wisdom in chapter 28 could not be found in the land of the living. But God established wisdom in the wind of the storm. The the only way to wisdom is death and humiliation. The way to wisdom is to be tossed about in the wind and the storm. Verse 26, as we keep reading, we see darkness. Verse 27, affliction. Verse 28, mourning. Job has become a brother to jackals, a companion to ostriches, animals that are associated with God's curse throughout the Old Testament. And so Job's harp is turned to mourning and his flute to the voice of those who weep. Job has entered in to the lowest place. But it's here that God's wisdom is revealed. Remember, 1 Corinthians 1 says, At the cross, Christ became for us wisdom from God. That God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. That he chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is weak and despised in the eyes of the world. He chose to reveal his wisdom in a crucified king. Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God. When Job 28 speaks of wisdom being established in the storm and in the lightning being found in inaccessible places under the earth and in the deepest, darkest valley being found in the fire, all of this finds its fulfillment in the revelation of God's wisdom at the cross of Christ where the king of glory became a byword among men, mocked by thieves, 
spat on and struck by those whose lives he sustained, afflicted by God, experiencing, as it were, the flames of hell as he hung on the cross. But just as gold is refined by fire, the fire of God's wrath against him produced a treasure unlike any other. A treasure that cannot be purchased for gold, nor can silver be weighed for its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir. Its price is above pearls, and the topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it. The wisdom of God is revealed in the cross. God is here revealing his wisdom in silencing Job's accuser by his faithfulness in the midst of the storm. And God is here producing wisdom in Job as he learns obedience through suffering. But the supreme manifestation of God's wisdom would come some 1,500 years later when the greater Job would be tossed into the storm and again learn wisdom through suffering and again reveal God's wisdom through suffering. Who even as the flames of God's wrath burned against him, would continue to fear God and shun evil, would continue to to hold on to his father in filial fear and, and refuse to turn back. He would shun evil, and because he did, all evil would be triumphed over forever. This congregation is the wisdom of God, the cross of Christ. And as this passage serves then as a prophetic foreshadowing of what would happen to Christ, it becomes an invitation to us to come to the foot of the cross and behold the wisdom of God on display. So that's our last point, the invitation to wisdom. C.J. Williams, formed Presbyterian professor, says in his book on the shadow of Christ in the book of Job, um, following on the heels of, of chapter 28's praise of divine wisdom, chapters 29 and 30, which we just considered in in their depiction of Job's fall from glory to suffering, they present his descent as an expression of divine wisdom, which man needs to search out to its fullest implications. The provision of a righteous suffering servant who would descend from the heights of divinity to suffer unspeakable human hardship would be a revelation of God's wisdom hidden through the ages, glimpsed in Job, and revealed and fulfilled in Christ. That's what we have as we, as we step back and consider Job 28 through 30. And, and Job, as a preacher of divine wisdom, is inviting us to come and be partakers of it. He's inviting us to come and see the wisdom of God revealed in Christ. Every one of us, that sincere and genuine invitation and offer goes out to all to seek Wisdom to seek life in Christ and in his cross. Job's teaching us wisdom is not found in, in seeking glory in this life. Wisdom is not expressive individualism. Wisdom is not the kind of friends that, a thing that the friends have been offering, believing that by our works we can merit God's favor and somehow secure prosperity in this life. Wisdom is none of that. 
But wisdom is that which is revealed in the cross of Christ, which is foolishness to the world. And what Job is inviting us to do is to come and and partake of that wisdom by true faith in the one he foreshadows. And then, to be conformed to this same pattern of wisdom, by faith wrought union with the one he depicts. You see, this passage is not just a prophecy about Christ uh, calling us to faith and repentance, though it is chiefly that. But it's also telling us what true wisdom is. That true wisdom is dying to self. That true wisdom is being crucified with Christ. It's taking up your cross and following him in the way of suffering. This passage is a call to die. And in dying, to find life. That's why I said that the world's standard of wisdom and the Christian's standard of wisdom are not the same. The world says you only live once, so live it up. Christ says this life is only the beginning, so give it up. And as you give your life away and are conformed to the pattern of his cross, it is then that you participate in God's defeat of the enemy and his overturning of worldly wisdom and his silencing the accuser. must be brought to the foot of the cross. We must give our lives away. We must learn the wisdom of suffering. Johnny Erickson Tata says, A severe mercy from the hand of God, which our dark side abhors, but our enlightened side recognizes as home base. Love this revelation of God's wisdom and the suffering of Job and the suffering of Christ is an invitation for you to come and die to be reduced to nothing, to take up your cross, deny yourself and abandon the attachments of this world, to surrender yourself to Christ in union with his death and recognize, as Bonhoeffer said, that the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our union with Christ. If we lose our lives in his service and carry our cross, we'll find our lives again in the fellowship of the cross with Christ. And Job 28 this morning is is asking you, do you believe that? Do you believe that a life of self-denial, a life of self-forgetfulness, a life perhaps of, of being despised by the world around us and rejected, a life of humility. Do you believe that that's what Christ is calling you to? Do you believe that in the book of Job we find a shadow of the Christ with whom we are called to share in his suffering? And that that suffering for some of us might mean becoming a byword among men? certainly in the world, perhaps even at times within the church. For some of us, it might mean feeling as if we have been abandoned by God. For some of us, it might mean that the sword will pierce even through our own families. For others, it might mean enduring slander because you do what's right and that makes others feel uncomfortable. Boys and girls, for you, this invitation to wisdom might mean standing up for what's right when your friends are calling you to participate in their sin and you refuse, and so they mock you. For Christians in in many parts of the world, this invitation to wisdom means fearing God and shunning evil when wicked rulers say you must worship me instead of Christ. 
remaining allegiant to Jesus no matter what they may do. This call to wisdom is a call to value the things that God values above the things the world values. It is a call to self-denying humility in the pattern of of Philippians 2, which we sang of just before the sermon, where, where Christ leaves his glory to suffer. And as you, you turn to the book of Philippians and you see that beautiful little Christ hymn in those five or so verses, it's in the context of a call that Paul is giving the church to follow suit. Christ in his condescending humility is being held up for the Philippian church and for us as an example of how to deny and humble ourselves for the sake of others. This is the kind of self-denying humiliation the cross calls us to. Think of marriage. The wife's call to submit to her husband or the husband's call to lay down his life for the sake of his bride. This is the kind of self-denying humiliation the cross calls us to. The same is true in the church as we think of the good of others and not just of ourselves. This is the kind of self-denying humiliation that what Christ has done at the cross calls us to. The first Corinthians chapter one says is true wisdom. That Job says is true wisdom. Dying to self. Humiliation. Self-denial. Self-forgetfulness. Sharing the suffering of Christ. This is why Job says that wisdom is more valuable than rubies. Because it costs everything. But is of supreme worth. Far more precious. Far more valuable than all the, the treasures that the world has to offer. The wisdom of God revealed in the cross of Christ. The treasure worth selling everything. As we come to a close, beloved, heed the call of Job this morning, the preacher of divine wisdom, and cling to the wisdom of the cross. In confessing Christ by faith, and then in taking up your cross to share with him in his suffering, and the Bible says in that way, we have the privilege of taking part in his silencing of the accuser and crushing him beneath our feet. May God give us grace to find true wisdom. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would give us eyes to see the wisdom of the cross, to grab hold of it by faith and repentance, and to be conformed to it Understanding that wisdom is not as the world says, but that the ultimate revelation of your wisdom is in a crucified Messiah who calls us not only to grab hold of him by faith, but then to be conformed to the pattern of his suffering. Lord, we pray that you would help us to do that in every area of our lives, that by so doing, Satan might be crushed under our feet. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.